Okay, so here's the thing about this episode. I got my COVID vaccine last week, which is great. We love to see it. However, I guess I'm just a very warm-blooded person because if someone who had a cough three weeks ago so much as looks at me, like, across an Aldi car park, I will get a fever. And when I get a fever, I do just lose the plot entirely. And that was the kind of state I was in when I wrote the plan for this episode. Which, in all honesty, is unlikely to be a big problem because I am apparently completely unable to look at my own plans that I spend hours making. But on the other hand, my other creative output from that time was a 50-slide PowerPoint on why every Doja Cat song is actually about Loki, so we'll see how this one goes. You know, I just love showing you guys behind the scenes, you know, showing you my creative process. This is how it all happens. And on that note, welcome to the Loki podcast, a podcast in which I talk about Loki. I'm Annie, your thankfully no longer feverish host, and today I'm going to be talking about The Gospel of Loki by Joanne M. Harris. And I just want to give a quick shout out to Alyssa for requesting this episode over email, which, by the way, is a thing any of you can do if you're ever possessed to do so. So I'm going to be talking again about adaptations of Norse mythology, how they work, what's good about them, and specifically what's unique and interesting about this one. And in particular, I want to touch on world building because I think that is something that really stands out about this book, and also all of the books Joanne M. Harris has written about Norse mythology. And of course, this book is also particularly relevant to the interests of this podcast as a retelling of Norse mythology that's written from Loki's perspective. So this book really does have a lot going for it. But before getting into all of that, Let's get into some news. So today, all I've got for you is comic books, but it's really cool stuff, so bear with me. So last Wednesday, we got the first issue of Thor and Loki Double Trouble, and I'm not going to go hugely into detail on my thoughts on it here, mainly because, as you might also be aware, I actually made a little bonus episode with all my thoughts and feelings on it on the day it came out, so you can go and listen to that if you're curious to know what I thought of it. But I will say here that I did really like it. It's a lot of fun, and the art is so nice. So if you're looking for quite a light-hearted comic book read, this really fits that bill. It's a cute little look into Thor and Loki's teenage years, and it made me very happy. In other comic book-related news, Loki also made an appearance in the ongoing series Strange Academy. So the premise of this title is that Doctor Strange has founded a school of magic, and we're essentially following along as the students go through their school life. Personally, I read the first three issues of Strange Academy, and I didn't like it that much, which is a real shame because I liked a lot of the characters, and for me, if I don't like the characters, I can't really get into something. I just felt like the cast of characters was possibly a bit too big. I didn't really know who anyone was, or what they were doing, or really what the plot was. I did really hope that it would kind of grow into itself, and I still intend to read it as a trade paperback or something. But if you do need some extra Loki content this week, this is actually his second appearance in the series. He was also in the first issue. So there's that if you're interested. And now a few bits and pieces from you guys. So first of all, Katie over email asked me, is your house haunted or something? There's always the faintest of bangings happening in the background. So here's the thing, I assume this house probably is haunted, it's been around since like the early 1800s, so I'm sure there's a few ghosts knocking around. Maybe I'll do a Ouija board session at some point and find out. 
But also, I live in this house with like five people, as well as two cats who somehow always end up being the noisiest. I do as much as possible try and record when everyone's out, but that doesn't happen much at the moment obviously, so that's probably what you're hearing. Marcus asks, do you watch Marvel outside of the Thor movies, and do you have any favourites? Yes, I have watched most of the other Marvel movies. Not all of them. I still haven't seen Ant-Man, either of them, or Doctor Strange. But I'm doing a full MCU watch-through with all the TV shows and everything, so I'm going to cover all my bases, you know, at some point in the next five years, maybe. As for favourites, I would definitely say Captain Marvel. I really loved that film. The soundtrack was so good. Loved the 90s vibes. And also, outside of the Asgardian stuff, the stuff that happens in space is probably my favourite bit of the MCU. Which we obviously got a lot of in this movie. We were introduced, well, I guess, reintroduced to the Kree and the Skrulls, and I just loved that aspect of it. Also, it's just really gay. My other favourite would definitely have to be Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. No, I'm not going to argue that it's brilliant TV. Though I do think it's a lot more solid than people often give it credit for. Personally, I'm very attached to this TV show because I remember watching it when it first came out, when I was like, in year 10 maybe, and it meant the world to me. I loved it. It's probably one of the only TV shows I've ever managed to follow along with consistently. So yeah, it's definitely one of my favourites. And finally, Arneson the Great on Instagram asks, I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on the actor Tom Hiddleston who plays Loki. Also, do you think the MCU Loki is a hero or a misunderstood villain? So to answer your first question, I'm personally not that into the whole celebrity thing. I'm not judging it or anything, I just am not very interested in it. That being said, Tom Hiddleston is obviously a great actor and he does a really good job of playing Loki. Loki is, at various times, funny and scary and tragic and a whole bunch of different things and Tom manages to capture all of that. He also really clearly cares about Loki, which is a nice thing to know about the man who is playing your favourite character. He's clearly done his research and he talks passionately and intelligently about Loki in all of the interviews I've seen from him. Owen Wilson also recently revealed the delightful bit of information that Tom just has these Loki lectures ready to go whenever he needs. Which, you know, is probably one of a few things that me and Tom Hiddleston have in common. So yes, I like Tom Hiddleston and I'm really grateful for what he's done for this character. And as for your second question, I do kind of feel like that is THE question. Like once I answer this question, that's it, game over, podcast done. And that is exactly why I give a different answer every time I'm asked this. So this is my answer for today. I think Loki is just a lot less interesting if he's the hero. I really like that at best he's morally complex, and at worst he's just awful. He's certainly capable of being heroic at times, but being a hero requires being quite simply good, I think. And it's worth remembering that as he's redeeming himself and saving the day in Thor Ragnarok, he's also literally destroying Asgard and stealing the Tesseract yet again. And you might ask, are any of the Avengers simply good characters? And that is a good point. Both Iron Man and Black Widow are morally dubious characters. However, they are morally dubious characters because they have this dark past, and at some point, for some reason, they chose to be different. To be better. And admittedly, you could argue that Loki has a similar moment of redemption. But again, he is literally destroying Asgard in that moment, and it's very much implied that Thor can't go and do that. So Loki can only really be heroic when he's not being a hero. 
So my answer for today is that Loki can and does do good things without being a hero. And also, I personally would find it boring if he was one. But of course, you are free to form your own opinion. And if you do have a different opinion, I would love to hear it. I would actually love to see the range of opinions people have on this. So please do get in touch. You can still find me at Loki Podcast on Tumblr, Twitter, or Instagram, or email me at thelokipodcast at gmail.com. So onto the topic of today's episode, The Gospel of Loki by Joanne M. Harris. And this is actually now one of four books that she's written based on Norse mythology. It acts as a kind of Loki-centric prequel to Rune Marks and Rune Light, and it also has a sequel in its own right, The Testament of Loki. And all four of these books exist in the same universe, And while I have read two of the other books, I'm going to try and keep this episode focused solely on the Gospel of Loki. First of all, just for the sake of simplicity, and second of all, because my copies of the other books are currently stranded in my room in college, so I can't get at them at the moment. But all the same, I will at some point do an episode covering the series as a whole, because I think these books play off each other in a really interesting way. This episode is also particularly interesting to me because it's actually the second one I've done on a work of fiction that's based on Norse mythology. You might remember a few episodes back, I talked about Neil Gaiman's book called Norse Mythology, and I'm not really going for a comparison of these two books in this episode. But I do think it's going to be fun to look at a very different approach to writing Norse mythology. And The Gospel of Loki differs from Neil Gaiman's book Not only because it is 100% Loki-centric, I mean, Loki is the narrator of this first-person narrative, but also just in the general world-building. And I actually think the world-building is something that stands out as very unique in all of Harris's books on Norse mythology. And I really love the semantics, the specific words that she uses to describe this world. Talking about shapeshifting in terms of aspects is a particularly nice touch, I think. It specifically defines shapeshifting as the revealing of different versions of yourself, which is just a really nice way of accommodating all the varying and often contradicting traditions and ideas that we have about all of the gods. And it's particularly interesting in the context of Loki. So while all the gods can shapeshift or change aspect, Loki is particularly flexible in his ability to do so. And he does take on a whole bunch of different animal forms throughout the course of the book, But there are a few favourites that he comes back to over and over again, namely the hawk aspect and the wildfire aspect, which is interesting because it shows that Loki is more changeable than the other Aesir, but at the same time he does have a few key aspects of his character. The way this book talks about runes is also really cool. So if we look at our early sources, things like the Eddas and some other poetry that deals with runes, There's no one consistent way to talk about or think about or use runes. And the Gospel of Loki does a really good job of capturing all of that diversity, while still having a clear and consistent magical system, which is something that we expect from modern fantasy fiction. The runes are thought of as language and writing. Odin initially wants them from the Vanir so that he can record his own history and establish himself as a god. Runes are also used directly as weapons. We see them shot like you would a bow and arrow. And they can also be woven or forged like raw materials. The book is full of rune whips and rune swords and belts made out of runes. I think one of the most interesting images in the book comes from the section that deals with Ragnarok. So Loki's troops are besieging Asgard and they are described as unraveling the thousands of runes that made up Asgard's gleaming walls. The idea of unraveling brings up ideas of clothing and weaving, 
And while we know from the episode with the Builder that Asgard is built out of stone, it raises the question, what is Asgard actually made of? And I think that links back really nicely to the idea of runes as language. Odin needs them to write his own history and make himself and his friends into gods. And so it makes sense that their divine city is made out of these magical elements that also kind of reveal Asgard to be a fiction in itself. A final aspect of the world building that I feel like I should mention is this whole idea of the opposition between chaos and order. So chaos is a place that you can leave and enter, as Loki does exactly twice in the book, but it's also a state of being that is fundamentally different than how we exist in the world. Loki talks a lot about how leaving chaos means he has to take on a physical body, and how that comes along with a whole bunch of new experiences like pain and pleasure and emotions. And I think that's what's really interesting about the idea of chaos in this book. It's fundamentally incomprehensible. And it's also paradoxical in the fact that it is in direct opposition to order and thus the known world and basically everything in existence. But it's also very desirable and kind of how the whole world of order keeps working via glam. And so the magic that is so fundamental to the working of this world is actually just little chips of chaos making their way into the world of order. And so the image that emerges is one of a world built precariously on top of a lava pit, and so its downfall feels all but inevitable. And this chaos as a force of destruction is paradoxical in itself. It has agency, it's capable of having intent, and it's personified via the figure of Sutta, but at the same time it's just an unstoppable force of nature. It's not malicious in the way, say, Gulveig Haid is. And it's interesting because Sutter is probably the closest thing the story gets to a villain, and yet he never speaks, and no one even tries to reason with him. And so the forces of chaos do have to be understood in the context of order, but there's also an understanding that they are something fundamentally different and incomprehensible. And this is another way that the Gospel of Loki really plays with the inherent paradox and contradiction of mythology. And as a case in point, let's look at Loki's origin story in this book. So Loki initially comes from chaos, this kind of unknowable state, and that goes a long way to explain Loki's normal patterns of behaviour. Chaos is just a very natural association. The book also really leans into the fact that Loki's parentage is slightly obscure. So Snorri lists Loki's parents as Farbauti, a giant, and Laufey, who we don't know anything about really. And in the Gospel of Loki, Harris chooses to lean into the etymology of these names, what these names literally mean. Farbauti almost certainly can be translated to Cruel Striker, whereas a translation for Laufey's name is a little bit more unclear, but the apparent meaning is Leaf Island, and so Loki's conception becomes lightning hitting a pile of dry leaves. And so Loki is Wildfire, which he is closely identified with throughout the book. And Loki specifies that this parentage of his is not metaphorical, and so we loop back to the idea of chaos being an unknowable state, in which the abstract concept of wildfire can become embodied and real in the form of Loki. And that process of becoming embodied, in becoming a person, creates paradoxes of its own. While wildfire can't complain that leaves and lightning are not good parents, Loki as a person can, and Loki actually does refer to them as absent parents on multiple occasions. And so this very human relationship, expressed in very modern terms, is built on top of these scant mythological details that we can glean from our very few sources. And that really is the fun in reading and writing fiction based on Norse mythology. 
In general, our sources don't really tell us about the gods' inner lives, their emotions, how they're feeling, why they do the things they do. But those complexities can be drawn out of the stories that we have about them in the realm of creative fiction. I'm pretty sure I've said this before, but I think a lot of Loki's modern popularity stems from the fact that his character lends itself to this kind of modern interpretation. Basically, Loki has what all successful characters need these days, that is, character development. I do want to be very clear on the fact that Norse mythology is not a cohesive whole, it's not a story told from start to end, it's more just a collection of scattered but related stories that can be put together and combined in an infinite different number of ways, and for very different effects. Which makes it almost impossible to talk about anything like character development actually existing. I mean, in something like Snorri Zedda it's possible, but again that is just one author's take on the mythological material he had access to. And I would argue all the gods are still relatively static characters. But Loki I think is strange in how contradictory his character is. He can be both a great help and a great hindrance to the gods. And as a convenient added bonus, he seems to be at his most menacing at Ragnarok, at the very end of the mythic timeline. And don't get me wrong, this could very well be an impression created by what little mythological content survives today, and specifically by Gilverginning and Snorri Zedda, which is pretty much our only lengthy narrative source on Norse mythology. But the point here is that this leaves a lot of fertile ground for modern authors to create a character arc for Loki. And this is something that pops up in a lot of Loki stories. It's fascinating to explore how he went from being a friend and an ally to the gods to one of their ultimate enemies. And being an overview of the entire mythic timeline, told from Loki's perspective, the Gospel of Loki explores in depth how he got from point A to point B. And we start the book with a Loki who is painfully innocent despite how tricky and conniving he is. And that's one of the really clever things about this characterization of Loki. He's simultaneously very canny, he's able to manipulate the world around him and the people around him, but he's also strangely otherworldly and unaware of the rules and taboos of this world, things that are very obvious to us but make no sense to him. And so sometimes, especially early on in the book, Loki's misdeeds seem more like an issue of culture shock rather than malevolence. And Odin even promises to protect Loki from the consequences of the things he does because of his chaotic nature. But at the same time, Loki is most definitely an unreliable narrator. But then again, so is Odin, and he's the one who traps Loki outside of chaos by marking him and making it so that he can never go back. And that really is the key thing here. The flaws of all the gods are on full display in this book, as seen through Loki's eyes. In the foreword, Loki presents this story as an alternative to the authorised version, that is, the prophecy of the oracle. And so of course we're going to see Loki's explanation for his own actions, as well as criticism for the gods that usually take the centre stage. And to talk about that latter part for just a second, it's interesting because the sources we have aren't averse to criticising the gods. The Aesir are, at times, portrayed as stupid, or prideful, or promiscuous, or just generally flawed. And I think probably the best example of that is the poem Lokasena, which establishes a role for Loki as a critic of the Aesir. And it's interesting to me that that's the kind of tone that is adopted in the Gospel of Loki. It's one of the roles that he plays in this book. Of course, the other, and possibly more important role that Loki plays is that of his own defence lawyer. And Loki isn't exactly on trial, 
But I do think it's fair to say that in the Gospel of Loki, he is trying to sue for control over his own reputation, from Odin and his version of history. One of the commonly repeated lines is, so shoot me, followed by a more or less believable excuse for whatever Loki's latest misdeed is. Whether it's blaming an early morning moment of madness for cutting Sif's hair off, or his own absent parents for his complete inability to be a good father. And on that latter note, I don't think all of Loki's excuses are convincing, nor are they meant to be. I don't think we're meant to come away with the impression that Loki did nothing wrong. This is not out-and-out Loki apologism. And I would argue that that process of explaining rather than excusing is not just an incidental part of the story, but actually the fundamental approach to how this story is told. What I mean by that is that what Loki does, and what is done to Loki, are not just one-off events that aren't connected to each other, but they're laid out as a gradual build-up to Loki's eventual defection from the gods and his role in Ragnarok, with a lot of ups and downs and bumps in the road along the way. As I was saying, it's a character arc, and I think this is a very natural interpretation of the mythology as we know it. I don't necessarily think that's how someone like Snorri Sturluson would have seen it. I think for Snorri, Loki probably had what I've taken to calling incurable bastard disease. And I am almost 100% sure that someone else has said this more eloquently than I am right now. However, there are just some characters that turn up in Old Norse literature who are terrible, do terrible things, and will never be anything other than terrible. If you've read any of the sagas, you might have come across Eilt Skatla Grimson, and he definitely fits the bill. I also have a lot of affection for King Heidrik from Havara Saga, who at one point gets kicked out of a party after making one man kill another, and then halfway home decides that he hasn't caused enough problems, and so turns back around and accidentally kills his own brother. And I might talk more about this trope in another, more appropriate episode, but the point I wanted to make is that while that's Snorri's take on Loki, it is certainly not the view taken by Joanne M. Harris. In the Gospel of Loki, Loki's resentment for the Aesir grows out of their resentment for him. Before Loki even has the chance to do anything wrong, the Aesir attack him purely because he's from Chaos. And, in fact, in the first book of the Gospel of Loki, Loki's actions are largely restricted to petty mischief. He almost loses Freya, the sun and the moon to a rock giant, but saves the day at the last minute. He also sleeps with a lot of men's wives, including Thor's, and then he cuts off Sif's hair as a trophy. So yeah, he is kind of a dick, but in the end, he's not trying to cause any lasting damage. He genuinely did think his gambit with the Builder would work out in his favour, and he has a backup plan for when it doesn't. And in the case of Sif's hair, he admits that he didn't realise it wouldn't just grow back, or that cutting it off would deprive her of her goddess aspect. He also obligingly fixes this problem too, which leads us on to the end of the first book, and the first real turning point in this story. And that's one of the great things about weaving together mythology like this book does. To some extent, you're free to put a lot of the stories into whatever order you want them to be in, in order to pull out certain threads and certain implications. You're also free to place emphasis on specific moments that are particularly important. And in the Gospel of Loki, one of those moments is the sewing shut of Loki's mouth. Now I have my own feelings about why this myth is so important. It's obviously a very powerful image, especially if you take into account how reliant Loki is on his ability to speak and to lie. It's not just physically painful, it's also humiliating. And in this particular version of events, it's a moment of realisation. 
I mean, it is also physically painful. Loki describes it as being like being punched in the mouth by a fistful of wasps. But he then says that it didn't hurt as much as the laughter of the other gods, his so-called friends. It's the humiliation and the alienation that really hits hard. And this whole ordeal changes Loki. He says that there's something in his heart, a barbed thing, like a roll of wire, that never ceased to trouble him. It's also at this point that he swears that he's going to get back at the gods. And it's not as if Loki had been adverse to a bit of schadenfreude before this point. It's just that revenge hadn't been part of the picture. From now on, when Loki acts in a way that the gods don't like, it's not just because of his mischievous nature. It's a deliberate and calculated choice. And it's also worth noting that the way this book works shifts slightly at this point. So book one of the Gospel of Loki lays down some of the foundational myths. So that includes things that, by necessity, have to happen at the beginning of the timeline, like the creation of the world and the Aesir-Vanir war. And it also includes things that logically happen quite early on, like the building of Asgard's walls and the acquisition of some of their key possessions, like Mjolnir. And quite conveniently, the story of Mjolnir's origin also provides an origin story for Loki's malice towards the gods. Loki's mutilated lips are essentially the price paid for Thor's hammer. And so from there, we move into the kind of middle of the mythic timeline. These are stories that can kind of happen in any order, and probably did in their original tellings. And in this particular telling, the stories are ordered in such a way to create an undulating path through the mythology. Which is a very pretentious way of saying, Loki's feelings are very variable. Sometimes he's hell-bent on revenge, and sometimes he kind of just forgets about it. When Loki is actively trying to undermine the gods, the myths used are imbued with this malice, as well as being worked into a larger scheme to take down the gods in the end. And don't get me wrong, this malice is present in our early sources as well. It's just much more pointed here, and it serves a purpose. It is specifically revenge in a way that I don't think it is for Snorri's Loki. In other terms, Loki isn't just an incurably evil bastard, He's a fully fleshed out person, with a motive and an end goal. And this motive is worked into all of the myths told in this second book of the Gospel of Loki, with either a lighter or a heavier hand. And some of these myths are already Loki-centric, so they only really need to be written in a certain way to give a sense of Loki's inner motive. So this category covers the abduction of Aiden and her apples, as well as Thor's adventure to Girod's Hall, and also Thor's wedding to Thrym. These myths don't so much have to be reworked, but instead spun in a certain way. Some of the myths, however, have been all but rewritten, especially those that are obscure, that we don't know much about, or those that Loki just doesn't play a big part in. For example, the story of Freya and Brisingamon and her four knights with the dwarves is all but an original creation on Harris's part. It takes what are essentially illusions and scraps of story that we find in the sources, and mixes it in together with pre-established things in the world of this book. It weaves in Loki's desire for revenge, while also referencing back to his previous visit to the world of the dwarves. And the story of Frey's marriage is also pretty heavily changed. While the essential details of the story do stay the same, Frey's servant Skirnir is identified with Loki, and instead of genuinely trying to help Frey, this is just another one of Loki's plots to subtly undermine the Aesir. Which, I assume, is playing off Loki's accusation in the poem Lokasena that Frey will regret giving away his sword at Ragnarok. 
But as I mentioned before, this isn't just a straight road from Loki being an ally to the gods to being one of their ultimate villains. Loki's feelings vary, and at certain points he even gets distracted. For example, after his marriage to Sigyn and subsequent affair with Angerbotha, he seems to reach a state of satisfaction almost. He says that the knot of barbed wire around his heart starts bothering him less and that he can go weeks without thinking about revenge. This not-so-traditional marital bliss is then followed up by a sense of celebrity. Loki gets famous off the back of his involvement in Thor's marriage to Thrym, and people become almost fond of him for his tricks. Most importantly, all of this works to put Loki at ease. At this point, he almost loses sight of his desire to get revenge. Though, of course, Loki is writing and speaking from the position of hindsight, and so there are hints all the way through that this slice of happiness he'd found won't last. And at this stage, Loki is due a few rounds of disillusionment. First, his fame is shattered. His humiliation at the hands of Utgarda Loki proves that he isn't as clever as people thought he was. And when Odin finally sees through him and their relationship falls apart, this is when Loki really is broken. This is when his fate is sealed, not just by the prophecy of the Oracle, but also just by the situation itself. And so we move into the final two books of the Gospel of Loki. This is when Loki commits what is probably his most grievous crime, that is, murdering Balder. And at this point, it's hard to interpret this as anything other than Loki being 100% malevolent towards the gods. But even here, this isn't just a simple act of revenge. It's part of a wider and much more convoluted scheme. Namely, Loki needs Balder dead so that he can secure a favour with his daughter Hel, and thus avoid his inevitable death. But there's also an element of a long-standing grudge between Loki and Balder, or at least a one-sided grudge on Loki's part. Right from their first meeting, Loki does not like Balder, and he even admits that he doesn't know why that is entirely. And this pre-established enmity that Loki has for Balder makes his eventual murder of him all the more explicable. It does make sense for Loki to murder Balder, mythologically speaking, but that kind of logic doesn't always directly translate to modern fiction very well. And so the slaying isn't just mythologically driven, there are also personal and logical reasons as to why Loki does what he does. And Loki's final battle with Heimdall is given the same treatment. I admit, I don't know why it should be Heimdall that fights Loki at Ragnarok in Snorra Edda, but in the Gospel of Loki, it's the product of a long-standing rivalry that began right at their first meeting. And that is essentially what this book is doing. It's taking disparate mythological stories and tying them all together so that when we get to the end, it all kind of makes sense. Now let's talk about the end for a second. So, traditionally speaking, Loki dies in Ragnarok, and that is kind of what happens here, though it's not a hell kind of death, but a deepest dungeons of chaos kind of death. Loki is dead, but at least alive enough to write this book and appear in multiple sequels. And so the book ends with the promise of new runes and new harvests, as well as a possible rebirth for Asgard, and also a rebirth for Loki, if he can just twist the words of the prophecy to his benefit. And so the book ends by emphasising the importance of words and stories, especially to gods. And so the whole thing just becomes so wonderfully metatextual. Not only are these stories told in earnest, as if they're true, but the book also engages with myths as stories in themselves. And I didn't even get round to talking about how the conversion of Christianity figures into this book, which is something that has a very similar effect. But I think that's a theme that's going to be much more relevant in the eventual episode I do on runemarks. 
What this all adds up to is that the ending is very enigmatic. It's not really clear what has happened or what's going to happen. On the one hand, this sets up nicely for sequels, but on the other, it just makes sense. By the end of the book, we've reached Loki's present, and Loki's present is that he's trapped in chaos. And the Gospel of Loki leaves us, as the audience, trapped right there with him. And as we've seen, chaos is nothing if not beyond our understanding. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode, I really hope you enjoyed it. If you had any particularly strong reactions to anything I said, or just the concept of Loki in general, please do get in touch. You can find me at Loki Podcast on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. And you can also email me at thelokipodcast at gmail.com. You're also very welcome to share your opinions on this podcast on Apple Podcast if the mood so strikes you. So that's all from me. I'll see you next episode. And remember to get vaccinated when you can.